Gillian Lynn sat down with moderator Marvin Laird for a one-on-one interview in February of 1996. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. This afternoon, I'm glad that you could all make it. And uh, I wanted to give a special thanks to Jillian and Marvin for joining us here today. Um, Marvin Laird's bio is not in your program, so let me just say a couple of things. Um, Marvin is the, <laughs> is the composer of the uh, hit musical Ruthless, and he is a musical director, songwriter, and uh, he has worked with Jillian on both sides of the Atlantic on many projects, which I'm sure you'll hear more about. So let me turn it over now to Marvin Laird. Thank you, David. And it is my great pleasure, of course, to be able to introduce you to Jillian Lynn, who is a dear friend of long standing, and as David said, we have worked frequently uh, together. And so today we hope to uh, illuminate you all a little about her career. And if, if I may just indulge all of us a bit, <laughs> I will try to waltz as quickly through some of our credits just so we all know uh, who we're talking about. Broadway credits include Aspects of Love, choreographer, Ben Opera, musical staging choreographer, Cats, associate director, choreographer, Roar the Grease Paint, musical staging choreographer, Pickwick, musical staging choreographer, and Jeeves Takes Charge, director. West End, London, Aspects of Love, again, Phantom, Cabaret, Cats, to those born later at the National as director, Jeeves Takes Charge, director at Fortune and Windows. Tonight at 8 at Fortune as director, Tom Foolery, director, choreographer, the, cri- the Criterion. The list goes on, clearly. My Fair Lady, Yeoman of the Guard, Hans Christian Andersen, Phil the Fluter, you all remember Phil the Fluter, <laughs> The Ambassador, The Paper Town, Paper Chase, Liberty Ranch, Once Upon a Time, The Match Girls, Valentine's Day, Pickwick, and most recently that was Friends before, which was one of the projects that Jimmy and I were both able to work on together. She's worked at the Festival Theatre in Chichester. Ballets have been created by Ms. Lynn, uh, one of which is called Mithazana, which is revised and choreographed and inspired by the Spanish Writing School of Vienna, premiered by the Northern Ballet Theatre. A Simple Man, dance drama of the life of painter L.S. Lowry, which is devised, directed, and choreographed again by Julian, and is produced by the Northern Ballet and also BBC. And it marked the first performance of Wara Shearer in 30 years. And if any of you have had the great good fortune to see this, it is a brilliant piece of theater, ballet, and television film. Uh, the Brontes was the most recent piece, which was completed just this past year, again for the Northern Ballet Theater, and it premiered at the Leeds Grand Theater on March 6, 1995. Jillian has obviously also dealt with a lot of international productions of the ones we've heard about uh, already. She spent five years at the Royal Shakespeare Company in London, did Comedy of Errors, Midsummer Night's Dream, The Boyfriend as You Like It, The Way of the World, Once in a Lifetime, and Laurent. 
And good lord, did you ever take a vacation? <laughs> Films, the choreography and staging for all were Yentl, half a sixpence, Man of La Mancha, 200 motels, European vacation two, Wonderful Life, Three Hats for Lisa, Every Day is a Holiday, Mr. Love, Under Milkwood, uh, Under Milkwood and Quilt. So I hope without a whole lot of further ado, we can just uh, walk on into uh, your life. And clearly one thing that jumps right off the page is that you must have an incredible number of frequent flying miles. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you obviously work with an easy uh, viability everywhere in the world, but especially uh, here and also in London. Um, perhaps you will share with us what you find as, as far as, is there, is there a discernible difference between the climate of working on, uh, on this coast or uh, on the other side of the pond? Uh, is there a decided difference? There is a difference, and, um, but I hope I won't have to answer a question I've always given, which I find obvious, like who, who is best, which is best, which side, and as I'm sure you will all agree that is not possible to say. Um, that there is, I still think there is much more commitment and hunger here because it's a much bigger, bigger country. It takes much more uh, working away at it, I think, to reach Broadway than it does to reach London because England is a smaller country. Um, uh, I suspect that the training here is still perhaps marginally better than it is in England, though I think we've caught up a lot with, with I'm very proud to say, cats. I mean, before cats, there were very few people that could manage chords line with the singing and the acting and the dancing. And uh, when we auditioned for the people for cats, we had to look a very long way and all over the country. But, as you know, it, it's managed to go on for a very long time, and we've gradually trained people, and we've now made as good a group of singer-actor-dancers, or dancer-actor-singers, as the way that show goes, uh, there, as I think uh, you will find here. So I'm very proud about that. Mm. Um, uh, and nobody ever says what's it like working in other places. I must just say about, uh, I, I directed Cats in Paris, and... Um, as you well know, Paris doesn't like musicals. It never has liked them. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that Cats in Paris managed one year and three months, which is a record. Though it wasn't really sort of a wonderful, the really useful company and uh, Cameron Mackintosh were not that pleased until I was quite frankly pleased because Les Miserables went the next year and only managed seven months. <laughs> strange work ethic indeed, and I insisted on having as many French as I could get, obviously, because that's the whole point about going to another country. In the end, we brought in a lot of Americans and English in desperation, but we tried to find as many French as we could, but, but what used to happen there is somebody in the full flood of health would come to you and say, I <laughs> And you'd say, did you find me? Why are you fighting with no, I'm off. And so they don't have the same hunger that we've got. Now that feeling of I don't want my understudies to go on, they might be better. That's a very different thing. 
Vienna was my happiest experience with uh, Kat, whilst there were no union rules of any sort. We could bring in, <laughs> we could bring in a, a, a cosmopolitan company uh, from all over the place. We used to work terribly hard, and Steve Barton will tell you, uh, and very, very long hours, but I do believe in, in enjoying the pain, and I do believe in that energy breeds energy, and, and that, for my money, was the best company of cat that's ever been. And uh, so I'm extremely proud of it. And what suited that show was the cosmopolitan aspect, all those different nationalities learning to do that. It all brought something very zestful and exciting. You mentioned uh, the commitment that you feel here, and obviously you've experienced it uh, many places where you work. Uh, we have often discussed the joy that comes, in fact, the whole emotional range that uh, one experiences in the creative process, and we've all obviously come uh, from different avenues and via different uh, choices uh, to where we are in this community. Um, but I wonder, was there... Was there a moment uh, for you when you, I know you began your, your career as a ballet dancer, but did you have a moment when you looked at that choreographer and said, well, I can do that. No. I'd rather do that. No, I didn't at all. It was all a big mistake. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still amazed about it now. Um, no, but what I, what I did do was, I, I, was a, I was a pretty good classical dancer. I had had some wonderful roles at Covent Garden and then I uh, they, they needed what they called it's their, their name not mine they needed a dancing star at the London Palladium and they spoke to Robert Huffman who was a great actor dancer and said this is what we need what can you do and he said I'm just a, just a feisty little person to try and make an audience which does not wish to see dance enjoy it and uh, so I went in there and uh, that, that was an amazement. And I learned a great deal, and that also gave me the money to come here and go to class and start learning jazz and modern. And so I used to come here for holidays, and I was doing this a lot, and I was building um, a jazz technique and a modern technique on top of a classical technique. And believe it or not, in the early 60s in England, absolutely nobody was choreographing like that. So I found myself getting a little bit scratchy about, oh, why doesn't he ask me to do that? And I could do that and that. <laughs> and why don't they ask me to do that? And I was doing, you know, pretty nice things, and I was bored with that. So I thought, well, don't grumble about it, don't grumble about it, do something about it. So I started teaching. And I, I was doing two shows a night at Canadian and three on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And I was a dancing star, so I had to come on and do trick after trick for 40 minutes, flat out, three times a day, and um, go to class in the morning. So it, it, it's why I'm, even at the advanced stage, I've got more energy than most. <laughs> what, was the first, what was the first thing that you did choreograph, though, and how did that come? Well, the first thing was an absolute fluke. A woman came to me, a wonderful woman who ran the Western Theatre Ballet, and she said, uh, you are going to make a ballet with Dudley Moore, I said, we are, I am. And she said, yes, I've talked to the critics and I want a jazz ballet and they say you're the one to do it. So we did it. Dougie and I did a ballet together called The Island of Pussycat. It was a good little ballet. It didn't break any particular ground except that Dougie taught me the most wonderful jazz phrasing. And that's been very useful to me all my life. 
but it didn't, you know, nobody said this is the greatest routine. Um, but it did give me the chance to start teaching and finding people who were restless like I was. And I gradually got a wonderful group of kids around me. And then, this is where fate stepped in. Uh, I didn't know why I was teaching. I was just teaching to find people who felt like I was. And I, at that moment, a, a man been at Covent Garden when I was came to me and he said, my aunt has left me 900 pounds. We are going to do a jazz ballet. So I said, in what? And he said, oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll have to create a company. It just happened like that. And these people I've been teaching, gradually I coerced them out of the royal and out of this and out of that. And I asked um, the other uh, five choreographers who I thought in uh, England were choreographing in an interesting way. And, they, and I said, it's artistic freedom and a group of 12 people, 12 people including me, that you can work with. And what happened was that gradually they would ring up and say, um, Julia, I wanted to do it so much, but I've got this fabulous television in Amsterdam and I need the money, I can't turn it down. And so gradually it became an evening with Julian Pym. And um, I thought it would be a miracle if we could open, let alone I never thought about being any good. Um, and a lot of the composers dropped out, so that Dudley wrote most of the music, and Dudley's, Dudley Moore's um, composing is something else. I, I, I wish he hadn't become a film star, because I don't think he would have uh, written as little. Uh, but it was wonderful, wonderful music. And um, so we opened in the Edinburgh Festival in 1963 with me um, starring and choreographing and directing, and Dudley having written the most marvellous scores. We did all sorts of things. We put words with dance. We, we did the first jazz classical work that had been done. And um, wonderful David Merrick, who I worship, um, came to England at the time that this happened. And uh, it was the Edinburgh Festival. And he stayed with Hugh Beaumont, Binky Beaumont. You're all too young to know who that is, or was. That was, I don't know what the equivalent on Broadway is now, because he was the... Well, he was the straight uh, producer in t- I don't mean sexually. <laughs> we have no parallel. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was the best director of straight, straight play that everything to do with drama that England had. And David Merritt used to come once a year and stay with him and see the Edinburgh Festival and look for new projects. And... Uh, Binky was reading the newspaper and said, you better get, you better get up there and see this. And to my amazement, David Merrick did come and see our wonderful little company in the church hall. And he said, I'll take you to Broadway. And I thought, oh, I've never been worried about And I was there in a year. He, he lived up to his promise. So I was very lucky. But the whole length of that was, it, I didn't plan to be a choreographer at all. Not at all. It all happened quite nicely. Well, in addition to uh, your having been inspired by uh, Dudley, <laughs> what other mentors or teachers gave you particular um, desire to get into this field? Well, um, I'm very lucky. I, I, because I knew I was uh, going to do this interview, I, I had to actually write out for myself who had um, not only influence me, but taught me. And I, I'm very lucky. I worked with Prebojenska. I worked with Vera Volkova. I worked with Shusinskaya on mine. 
I worked with Jacques Lecoq because the BBC, when I, when I was still performing, decided that I had to narrate and live all 14 characters with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in Peter of the Wolf. And they sent it to me and they said, this is what you're going to do. And I said, I can't do it. How am I going to do it? And, they and said, I've seen the film and it is glorious and I can assure you that she can. She's a bouncy little person. But, you know, doing quite good but, uh, uh, um, so they sent me to Paris to train with Jacques Lecoq. I don't know if any of you know his work, but it's the most wonderful, wonderful work. It teaches you, um, it's not mime as we think of Marcel Marceau doing mime. It's much more eclectic. It's much wider in its range. It's, um, it's uh, for comedy, it's brilliant. For tumbling, it's brilliant. For drama, it's brilliant. It just teaches you everything. And when I came to do Cats, I realized what a huge genius this man had on me. And I came here and worked with mathematics and Frank Wagner and Gertrude Scher, and uh, there was a wonderful, and, and uh, I missed out one of the major influences, who was Minette Devalwa. He is still alive, he is uh, 94, or was it 97? 97. We've just had an incredible anniversary at Common Garden, that I'll tell you about later. Uh, she's still there, still looking beautiful, on a Zimmer frame, still speaking absolutely coherently. Her choreography was wonderful. She was as tough as goats to work with, which is why I believe... Tough as goats. Yes. <laughs> I believe that uh, well, there has to be a little bit of fear to bring the best out of all of us, and I think that's getting lost now, and I think that's a terrible shame. Anyway, we were a little bit frightened of Lynette Barber, but my God, she taught us so much, and everything she taught me was different. So I've had a very good cross-the-board um, school for that. Well, now, here comes that nasty issue of sex or gender. <clears throat> we know that ever since Shakespeare's boys played girls, and ever since Sarah Bernard Hart played Hamlet, and right up through Barbra Streisand's having to battle the odds of uh, a male-dominated organization, uh, that women have always had to, had to deal with uh, um, the odds. So how have these affected you, and how have you uh, managed to get where you are today? Well, first of all, let me say I'm not a feminist um, at all. I'm, you know, I know you can give yourself an orgasm, but it's much nicer than somebody else. <laughs> um, I actually like walking a pace behind my husband, and I said this on television here once at an interview. It was a real tough role, wonderful, but she was tough. Her jaw dropped open, and she said, why would you want to do that? And I said, because he'll turn around and say, who's that funny little thing there? Um, uh, come, come here, and I'll feel wonderful. So I'm not a feminist, but... Uh, what it has done for me is just make me more determined. I mean, it didn't make me bitter. It didn't make me feel this is impossible. And it didn't make me sort of scratch my nails and tear my hair out. It just made me think, well, I have to be better and I have to work harder at it. And it is daunting sometimes. It is. And it has been. And sometimes if you do a show with a male chauvinist team and you're the only woman, and I'm not saying to which I'm referring at all, <laughs> uh, that can be very hard, especially if you do the show well. But, uh, <laughs> can we start narrowing this down? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, 
I think it's unfair, it's like that, and now there are so many wonderful young uh, women film directors, and I think it's all ceasing, but it, it didn't make me feel, oh, this is impossible, it just made me think, right, I have to try harder. One thing you did mention as we were talking in the last couple of days uh, was that, unlike here in America, in England you feel that um, there is a t- more of a tendency to uh, pigeonhole and uh, stick one into categories about uh, whether you are a director or a choreographer, whether you work strictly for television or theater, uh, film. Uh, has this has this been uh, something that has affected your career, especially in England? I actually think it has. Um, I, I think it, had I wanted to remain just as a choreographer, I was very lucky. I could have remained making ballets and making musicals, and uh, that would have been pretty nice. And I probably would be better if I had stuck to that. But because I had such a varied career as a performer, I forgot to tell you that in this uh, sojourn at the Palladium, one night the casting director for Warner Brothers, who had tested 15 blonde women with big boobs for a part opposite Errol Flynn, and hadn't got anywhere with any of them, came in and watched a little brunette with tiny boobs dancing rather well, and to cut a long story short, I got the role opposite Errol Flynn, and because of that, when the, when the movie came out, um, I, I, I applied to get into a rep so that my acting would get better. The reason they accepted me was that the movie was coming out and they could get very good publicity. Um, and so that I started, I, I would be dancing Casper's at Paradeau on television one week and playing the, uh, the character woman in the deep blue sea the next in some rep. And so that fed into me. I hate to say it, it's a sort of need for doing it. As we said earlier on, I, I like the process. I'm not really mad about what something's opened, and I certainly don't bask in, in success. I, I, I weep in failure, but I don't bask in success. I love the making of it. I love the rehearsal uh, process. I love the commitment and the, the um, talk and getting under the skin of the people I work with. That's what I love. So the actual uh, finished result isn't so interesting to me. Um, and I think that maybe, especially in England, because I direct television and straight plays and musicals and make ballads, they don't understand me. Um, they understand me, but they don't really like it, and they don't like versatility in England. So I think have I stuck to maybe two of the particular genre that I do, I would be higher up the tree. But I don't care to be high up the I'm quite happy when I am swinging in a lower branch. <laughs> I hardly think that you're swinging in a lower branch. I have been able to witness in, in the rehearsal process that very thing that you mentioned, which was <clears throat> the coming together of all of your, the aspects of your career, certainly the dance and direction, but uh, I have, I've seen actors, I've seen dancers and singers who, when you demonstrated something dramatically, as an actress, were taken aback because it, it all seems to uh, have such an organic birth process out of everything that you have put yourself to in, in your career. Uh, I wonder, when you, when you work with uh, directors, other directors, uh, obviously you work as co-director, 
I've worked as choreographer to other directors. When you are doing that uh, kind of co-directional um, uh, creative thing, do you ever come in conflict? Uh, what is what is that? Uh, I'm sure you don't. But is there is there an aspect of a co-directorial process that you find uh, treading a fine line? I guess, you know, if I'm honest, I, I suspect it's why everybody um, who is a choreographer eventually wants to direct and does direct, because in the end, it does seem as though it's much the best to do it all yourself. But it depends who you're working with. I mean, I, I have the luck to work with some very fine people. I mean, three, Trevor now, I, I've worked, I'm not referring to musicals now, I'm referring to the wonderful years at the Royal Shakespeare Company, where I um, co-directed with John Barton, actually, in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I did production after production with Trevor and found that wonderfully stimulating. And um, because I was learning to be a better straight director all the time, I felt I was being enriched. And then we did the Comedy of Errors as a musical, and they didn't know about that. So I came out punching away there. And, and so I could contribute hugely. Um, Hal Prince, who I'd wanted to work with for hundreds of years, and we, it had always eluded us, and then we got Phantom together, so that was absolutely thrilling. And I found working with Hal not a bit like we were saying earlier, where the tension sometimes comes between um, male and woman or director choreography, because Hal is so great and so all-seeing and generous that he doesn't have to have any of those mean feelings at all. And then I was extremely lucky to work for three years with Jim Henson. Um, I worked on the Muppets for three years, and when I suddenly started to uh, direct television, I'll tell you how that happened in a minute, but I had never done the course, I hadn't had one lesson. And uh, my very first production, I wrote a meticulous camera script, and I always do write it meticulous camera script. I'm not one of those people who stages this and has someone else put the cameras on. I can test you And um, I realized I learned so much uh, of that from Jim, just working alongside him, week in, week out, planning the numbers with him, watching how we shot them. We, we used to plan all that together. And I, I'd had the best course in the world. And uh, I've, I've been very I think maybe one of the reasons that you do write such a meticulous script when you're directing, and I've, I've had a couple of experiences now with you, and I've, I've worked with maybe 35, 40 other TV directors in my time, and I've never seen a script like yours. Uh, but I think it must, it must have its roots in the labimentation which goes along with choreography and how detailed and how um, strictly to the letter you have to be, especially if you want something as subtle as a jet to survive. Also, I think it comes from years of staging very big television shows, which other people shot. And all the choreographers who have one directing their own material will understand what I say. Uh, when it is absolutely maddening when you plan something that should be a developing shot and three cuttings are done at the wrong moment uh, for the wrong bit of the body. And uh, while you are sort of wincing about that, of course, you're teaching yourself. And so I think a lot of my writing of the, the, the scripts I do was learned from just thinking, why didn't he 
do that? Why wasn't that done and that going in so that when I had the chance to do it myself, I did it? Last month, Cats became and actually surpassed every other Broadway and West End show and became the longest running worldwide musical show. And uh, on the face of it, one would have to admit that the, um, the various elements of the show would not um, augur well for being such a triumphant snipe. And there, there's not a human being in sight, it's a bunch of street cats and practical book. And I've, I've heard all kinds of versions of how cats came to be. I've heard it rumored that it was all improvisation. I would like to know, what is the true genesis of cats? Who first called you? How did it happen? And why are you still collecting royalties? <laughs> well, um, who first called me was uh, Cameron McIntosh. I, I was actually working on Oklahoma, rather behind the scenes for him in Bristol. Um, and uh, he rang me up and said, you are going to Newbury and you will be picked up by Andrew Lloyd Webber and I'm sending a small book round and uh, you're, you're, he's going to play some music for you. And that happened. And Andrew spoke all the time from Newbury Station to his house about his one failure, Jeeves. <laughs> Didn't speak at all about what he was about to play. And we got there and... Um, had a glass of white wine, and he sat down and played what I think is a miraculous score. I, I, I think Andrew is shamefully treated often here by the critics because having worked on his um, music for what is it now? No, since 1981 on various shows, I find it is very knowledgeable about what works in the theatre. It may not be Puccini, uh, but it sure as hell works in the theatre. And People are not told, you know, people don't stand on the pavement and say, get into that theatre, otherwise you're going to be shot. People go because they want to, and uh, he has the gift of doing that. So I listened to this, I by now read the little book of um, T.S. Eliot's poems about three times on the train, and uh, so I had those pretty well inside me, and this music that came out was really clever in the way it matched the words and the character that they were speaking about to the, to the music. It was very cleverly done. So I spoke all the time. Oh, we could do that there. Oh, isn't this wonderful? I, I see this here all the time he's playing. And he spoke all the time because when he plays the music, he tells you, about, oh, I, I did this here. And I thought I'd do that there. He's at his most enchanting. So we both spoke. And it finished, I had another glass of wine and went and he ran camera and I can watch up and said, that's why I want to do that. Um, I never have understood it to this day because I don't think he heard a word that I said. <laughs> but of course he had brought it here first. Of course Katz was brought to Hal Prince and Ronald Field. And Hal always laughs there. He says, dogs, I could have understood cats like this. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I don't know what Ron said. But anyway, we were awfully lucky that... Uh, that Cameron brought, that Andrew brought it back. And then what happened was I had the usual uh, tussle that one has for one's deal. Mm-hmm. When did we ever not have a tussle <laughs> in that way? And uh, I, I made one condition, because by this time I realized I would have, to, it, it was always conceived by Andrew, my brother, as a dancer from day one, and that's how it was introduced to me. And so I knew I would have to find something really incredible physically to 
to match those words. And so I said, I want a month of pre-work with a skeleton crew, one girl, one boy. The girl was Finola Hughes, who's now becoming one of your great soap stars. And the boy was a man called John Thornton, who was quite miraculous. The first Mungo Jerry has since died of a heart attack. I hope it wasn't working with me, but <laughs> such wonderful buddies. Um, he just up to nine one day. Very, very sad. And my assistant, Lindy Dalton, and a wonderful musician, you know, Chris Walker. And um, Andrew Webber said to me, um, Gillian, uh, the Rumpum Tugger, uh, I want you to work on him because he's done all the devils for me. And um, I know we've, we've said everyone must be a wonderful dancer. This man is a wonderful singer. But you've got to teach him to dance. Can you? And I said, well, if he comes every day to the class. So that number was totally, I did it as a present for him before uh, we got to rehearsal. That number was entirely staged for him. Yeah. Uh, before we ever opened. And I suppose at least half the show had been pre-staged, including the whole of the Jennifer Ball, um, before we ever started rehearsals. Because if it hadn't been, we would never have opened. We only had five and a half weeks. And trying to get a brand new cast through that show with all its intricacies and all the uh, knowledge of those words. and the mind we had to introduce, and the huge physical, um, they had to have massive stamina, which they didn't have. I mean, not to about the eighth preview, and we had ten. About the eighth preview, they started to find the stamina. And if we hadn't pre-staged an awful lot of it, um, we would never have opened. So a lot of what he's talked about, it, I don't agree with. It's not truly true. Um, but. The other thing is that still we found the show as we went because I was finding a style of the movement and I was finding a style for those words. But the connecting of the show, we literally, a lot of that was done as we went. And for instance, we didn't know how to open Act 2 at all. And we looked at the way Act 1 had gone and I suggested out of the blue, on instinct, which is how I do everything, it should be a meditation, whereupon Trevor delved into the huge whole um, writing, yes, in T.S. Eliot book, and came up with some beautiful words from Proofrock, and then Andrew set them, I think, quite wonderfully, and that all happened as we went. And we'd done several previews, and my husband actually happened to come to the show and said, it's all wrong that... Um, Isabella goes into that beautiful song without, we don't know enough about her. So uh, Andrew and I disappeared into the foyer and I talked to him about it and we thought this was absolutely right. We had to see why that woman sang that song. And it was all because she was hurt and upset inside. And uh, Andrew said to me, well, what would she do? And so we made that up there and then I said she'd do this and he then wrote it. And I said, well, then I think she'd do this. And he wrote that. And that's why that, uh, that dance is very fractured. It's, it's all her hurt and her turbulence coming out in spurts. And he made that up absolutely on, on the spur. Went back and taught it to a main page. So you can see that it's, it, it's, it's a different... It, it was a most extraordinary way of arriving at the show. This brings up uh, the 
collaborations that take place during the creation of the show between yourself and the musical director or the, uh, the dance music writer. Uh, how in do you feel um, these collaborations help the show to arrive at what the public buys on a new Well, I think they're absolutely right. And um, I was extremely lucky. My very first musical was done here for David Merrick with Anthony Newley and Leslie Griffiths. And Anthony Newley is brilliantly talented in the exploitation of a song and in the building of a song. So my very first um, time of building a music was learning uh, with Anthony, but actually contributing a lot too, because he was, as he always does, he was directing, writing, lighting, everything. So he didn't have a massive amount of time. But I picked up enough from him, and I worked with Peter Howe. And since that time, I've always worked, as you well know, for as long as I can, long before a show starts, exploring and opening out the numbers. And I think that wedding between composer, dance arranger, and choreographer is absolutely uh, That's not easy with Andrew Lloyd Webber, because not now, anyway. It was easier then. But now he threw rights, but so you, that's much more difficult. But most other composers I've worked with, I, I think it's a privilege and a joy to take what they've written, take what the text needs, uh, web that together and have a brilliant interpreter, somebody like yourself, to, uh, to take those processes on a pace and make a better musical in, as it as does. That's, that's the craft for me, I love it. And just as a footnote, um, to any of the producers who may be listening, that particular part of the process can very rarely be accomplished to the degree that we always like to be able to accomplish it in two weeks, which is generally what somebody likes to give pre-production time uh, for a show. It's, it's, uh, it's as important and as vital as the rehearsal period. It should be four to five, six weeks if possible. Yes, it should. And of course, all of that with the terrible economic problems of whittling down what happens now, that, that process also goes down. But I think we, in, people in my position and in my crop, should fight, fight for, for that length, even if, even if uh, you have to give up a bit of your fee or something, because that's where your uh, excellence, if you've got any, will come out. And it's where the show will be strengthened. You are about to begin work on a, a straight play here in New York. Uh, for Bill C. Davis, and <clears throat> we are once again reminded that uh, you continue to change hats, you direct straight plays, you direct musicals, you direct television, uh, you choreograph ballads, and I would like to know if you feel that this continual shifting of gears aids or hinders your creative process. Do you feel you'd be better off if you would focus more on musical theater or ballad? I think it probably helps my craft and it means that I'm in a permanently stressful state. <laughs> it means I'm frightened before every production because I feel, oops, I'm going off the dining board again, um, probably to something that I haven't done for a year. Um, but actually, I think the thatching, if you like, or weaving that I do from um, type of show to type of show 
is possibly, um, it's good for the performance, because I can bring a lot from the other genre, you know. Um, it's very frightening for me. And um, uh, this play I'm going to do on films, it's a beautiful play called Aval, and we're going to do it at George Street Playhouse first, and it's been, um, it's already been optioned by New York Music. It's the most beautiful, 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 and um, I'm hoping I can do it justice. Uh, I have to catch what Bill here, this, it'll give him comfort, because my very first straight play was um, tonight at 8.30, three straight plays in, in the series that Noel Coward wrote, and Vivian Matalon, who then ran the Hampstead Theatre Club, asked me to do it. And for six months, I said no, because I thought, why me? Absolutely, why me? He said, he could do it better, he could do it better. And in the end, he took me out to tea at the Dorchester and said, you're either going to say yes or no today, and I could just say one thing, and that is that I run the theatre. So if you foul up, <laughs> I am there. So that was slightly comforting. And um, I did it, and I did um, three of uh, Red Peppers, which is not so difficult. Um, I did We Were Dancing, which was very difficult. And I, I did it and completed it, and the actors were wonderful, and I knew it wasn't right. And so I got through the family album, which was the other most So I'd set them all, and then I went back and redid We Were Dancing. And uh, we were a huge hit. I mean, I've never had reviews like it in my life. I don't think I'll ever have them again. There's a bill saying, I hope I do. But um, this, um, it got the most wonderful reviews and transferred instantly to the fortune. And one night they said, now Noel is coming in tonight. And I was so frightened, I locked myself in the ladies' laboratory in the first <laughs> interval. And uh, at the end of the interval, um, I came out and the manager of the theatre was standing there saying, really, Jimmy, I'd rather just stay with me now he wants to talk to me. And his opening gambit was, you're a bench of a girl. We dropped, we were dancing after the first week. So I, you know, no wonder it was difficult. Uh, he, he said they found it almost impossible. And, you know, that, that's, it's a series of nine plays, you like it. And, and they never did it again. So I was rather proud then. <laughs> Uh, you and I have actually been uh, very fortunate to work together on several things for stage and television, and it, it obviously it appears that there is a dearth of dance on television right now, and um, seemingly the days which we uh, were able to be a part of in the golden age of variety television, uh, where major choreographers with anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 dancers would uh, be able to employ the, the uh, talents of the guest stars and people used to plan their weeks around uh, special or even sometimes a weekly series so that they could see these wonderful numbers. Um, I have my own ideas, but what do you feel is the likelihood that you will be ever able to see dance on television again, except from the odd number of the process of trying to set one up just at the minute. And one of the wonderful things about being part of Cats and Phantom is that I do, I can afford to make the odd television, and I've just made one of a show called um, That's What Friends Are For, which has two brilliant um, high baritones who could act as well, so you, you won't know. And um, 
Nothing like that happens on television. That music doesn't happen anymore in England. Only game shows, some drama. Um, game shows, documentaries, um, a lot of really slutty things, but not uh, beautiful music with, with words that matter. So, just for the hell of it, um, recently, uh, I made a television of this show, which we showcased here last um, fall, and we just did two sellout performances in London, as you well know, because Mar Marvin was the marvelous visitor today. And uh, it was interesting. Um, I made it at London Weekend Television, and um, they had not been doing anything with that kind of music or that kind of camera movement in a long time. And the entire station came to me again and said, this is why we joined, this is what we want to do. But it's terribly alarming because you talk to one person after another who have the ideas, who want to make that kind of thing. But in England, I don't know the situation here, and I'd be very interested to hear it. In England, the men who say, that we will make, that we won't make, that we will make, that we won't make, who make the choices of what is made. So, there are too few of them. You know, it, it rests in like two brains, and I think that's very unfair, both on the people who want to make the television and on the men having to make the choices. And uh, so, gradually, uh, the opportunity and to, to make better stuff like that. And for, for the dancers, I mean, dancers now in England are getting a raw deal because if it weren't for Crazy for You and Cats and one or two others, the amount of work available is whittled down to nothing compared to what it was. Um, I can't see those particular men, I'm talking about our and I can't see them having the daring to say, go ahead and do this, unless somebody like me actually comes along and makes right. it, presents it, makes it on spec. And you might lose your shirt, you might, because you might not sell it. But I think to sit and worry and grind your nails and, and uh, see kids who could be being developed and all of that, um, all going to waste, that's not on. And so if you are lucky enough to be able to make it, then we must all get up and do it. Um, I don't know what the answer to, to it is worldwide, uh, because it seems that public taste has gone in a different way. But on the other hand, we had to have an audience in the show I just shot, and uh, I suppose I had about 20 people of my own friends here. The rest were, we had to get in the audience, rent an audience. And uh, so I instructed the television company since the two uh, brilliant performers were not household names. I instructed the television company to send out little bios of everybody, plus a detailed description of what the music was, what kind of music it was. Now, we needed 250 people, and we had applications from 380 immediately, which proves to me that people do want that kind of music. There is a great dirt. I think people would love well. Uh, uh, um, well done music and dance. I'm, I'm, talk I'm not talking about puffing now, mm. about real good dance. With, and I used to rush home to watch the Perry Como show and the cast of the choreography and the standard of it before. Mm. And I, I think people would do that again, but I don't know if it's going to give me a chance. It's a very depressing thought. I had a friend on the West Coast who's a choreographer recently um, working in an editing bay 
assembling a reel of a lot of the numbers he had done, and I had actually done a lot of them with him it, during the 70s when we were all working all the time in variety. And a couple of the young people who were assisting him, who probably were generally associated with MTV, started watching these numbers and said, what, what is that? You're telling a story. <laughs> this, this happened. There's, there's real music going on here. It isn't a thousand cuts. And I think that people have, we have been a, a generation away from this kind of, of dance on television point where people have forgotten what, what is capable of being done. on <clears throat> television, whether or not the people who make these decisions, who sit there and try to clone everything that they know is being successful at the moment, if one of them will get the light out and perhaps be more adventurous, we just might have some more dance. <laughs> All of which brings us to uh, a next uh, area, which you have actually cut, uh, you've touched on, uh, and that is that working with dancers, we know that they are among the most arduously trained and the most consistently committed people, and the hardest working and the most consistently underpaid members of our community. And yet, their work seems to be the most um, cavalierly uh, dispensable uh, as far as some of the producers' um, views of them uh, appear to be. Um, and this all on top of the fact that dancers' lives, dancers' careers, like athletes, uh, have to face reality and see that they're very short in time. What do you, how do you champion dancers' causes? I know that you are involved in many uh, activities at the moment. How do you give them hope that there is, there is something there for them? You know? Well, I work on something called the Dancers Trust in um, England, which is trying to help people who come to the end of their career as a dancer switch and retrain. Um, because there is such a thing if you're a ballet dancer in England, there is an organization, Temple, which helps you to that not for people in Temple, the few in television and the many in musicals that if you if you hurt your car or Something or have a hip hop which doesn't work, unlike mine, which did. Um, <laughs> uh, um, if, if you have that, uh, there, there was nothing, there was nothing. Uh, and so I sit on a, a, a very interesting group of people and we fight. And in fact, um, Cats had its 14th birthday last year, and I went to um, Cameron and Macintosh and Andy went there, but I took Cameron out to lunch first and got his approval, and then I knew I would get Andrews to give me the take for the night for my trust. Um, so we got the whole take in order to uh, help people. Uh, in, as regards um, them be dancers being more respected, um, of course, I, I, mean, I grew up in a ballet company, and so I know how spoiled one can be in a way. Although it's hard work, you live on an upper echelon in terms of social life, and all that. And I went all around this country with with the Royal Ballet, and uh, I was always dining with ambassadors, and I had tea with the Lord Chief Justice, and, and, was, and then the next time I went around the country, it was with the Royal Commission and David Merrick, and it was a very different thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was much tougher. And you know, the only thing that was tough on the when I when I went round with the ballet was that we would arrive in the town, and all the girls would pick up their own suitcases and stagger up the platform, and the boys were met with 
men in swinging coats, um, <laughs> olive wreaths, and everybody carried their bags. That was very unfair. <laughs> Just happened to be. We have no parallel today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, in regards, uh, the only way I can think that dancers will. Because dancers are never going to be respected like we would like. I don't know. There's something about it outside of the ballet company. Um, it's always going to be the actors who are thought of somewhat higher than them. And I don't understand why it is. And all I can say is that I give my whole heart and respect to, to dancers because I think there's nothing to touch them. And if you have to do an acting scene with a dancer, it's a thrilling thing because they will just dive off the deep end. If you, you can say, we're, it's twilight, there's a strange light up there, and I want you to run on and go mad. They won't say, what sort of, what, where, where is the light? And what type of, is it early twilight or late twilight? They'll come on and go, <laughs> they'll just, they'll have a go, and their inhibitions will come out, and uh, they will really have a wonderful go. And they are therefore, I'm not saying actors are wonderful, they work with, of course they are, but they get more respect. And I think all the only way one can care for dancers is by putting them beautifully as a work with them. Now, having said that, I've got a terrible name for being tough. I don't know if I have a terrible name for being tough here, but certainly I do in England. Um, and that is that it's not tough in terms of shouting, or um, it's tough because I want them to be the brilliant creatures that they are. I want them to be stand up, I want them to be perfect. And so I won't let them fail. So I'm, I'm relentless in that way that I will get them there. And I think that's what one must do for them. One must always love them, push them to the end of the week, but in terms of the theatre, truly respecting them on the same level, I'm not sure that that will happen. We were recently rehearsing in Elliot Fell's studio at Aiden and Broadway, and we remarked on that incredible dedication in the faces of those beautiful Dagon-like creatures, uh, 13 and 14-year-olds who obviously had made a conscientious choice to, to pursue a career in dance. And uh, we remarked at the time that their, their environment is a bit of a hothouse uh, during their training period. And do you encourage your, the people that you work with uh, to to add other aspects to their life because uh, it can be yes. daunting when they start to seek their way in, in professional Well, I do encourage it because uh, apart from anything else, the way musicals are going now, as we all know, you can't just go in as a dancer. You must be able to sing as well. But also, um, I love all-round performers, even, I mean, even in my Bronte ballet, which I've just done. Was a, was a heavily active piece. Of course, how could you do anything that wasn't about that incredible family? And so I wrote out for each character, I wrote out a long character development and um, probe, really, who that person was, why they were, therefore what, why I was going to ask them to move in certain ways. So I try to encourage um, everyone I work with like that to work on their voice as an actor or a singer, just to enrich them as a performer, even if they're only going to be in the bad company, I still think. And again, you see, I was lucky that when I was in the Royal Ballet, um, 
Robert Hubbard, who was a fine actor, and brought in a lot of very fine acting directors to work on the ballets. But yet, yeah, Inetta Valois' ballets were all dramatic. Frederick Ashton's ballets were, as you know, dramatic and lyrical. There were huge theatrical influences coming in, not just wonderful now, which we've lost at the beginning of now. But I think that a performer now, because I'm a dancer, has to have all that as well. I have two more questions I want to ask before we run this up in the floor. Uh, uh, early in your career, when you were with what was then Silas Wells ballet at Covent Garden, you were, you created the role of the Lilac Fairy in Sleeping Beauty, and, and the performance that uh, you, in fact, created it for that uh, character for uh, was the reopening of Theatre Covent Garden after the bombing of World War II. And recently, in fact, uh, about two or three weeks ago, you were asked to return for the 50th anniversary commemorative performance of that very production. And My Zimmer friend is just outside. <laughs> Zimmer friend is Walker. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to know what your thoughts were as you were waiting for your entrance music 50 years hence. I know that you're going to put the same frock on. We all see you today. I'm sure you, you haven't thrown a hinge out of that. <laughs> no. Well, it was, an, it was an amazing night because um, when the Covent Garden opened up the war, it was such a thrilling thing because all the tiaras came up and had all been buried against mm. um, the bombing. And the royal family were resplendent in ermine um, and the tiara was down in the which none of us had seen. And I was one of the three youngest um, we were all the same age in the com company and danced my first solo that night. It wasn't the night where I took that over about four nights later. It was the Enchanted Garden Fairy. Oh, and fair. just recently, uh, Sir Anthony Dow, to commemorate the 50 years on, um, tried to find as many as those oldies that were left to, to go on. And um, it's a very serious thought that mostly the women were left and an awful lot of the men have gone. And I found that most upsetting. Um, you know, it, I, don't, I just don't understand where it is. But anyway, that was the truth. And anyway, I and 28 of my friends from those days all returned. And unfortunately, I've never lost my love of performing. And I grew up in this theater. Mm -hmm. So it was at the start of Act 3, and they arranged a special music and um, each one's name was uh, called out and we went up onto a day so then we went down and made our reverence to the queen and got a bouquet from a lady or a champagne bottle if you were a man. But the wonderful thing was that because some of them hadn't quite kept in the same shape as I had because a lot of them aren't working anymore. You know, their wives and things like that, or teachers. Um, I'm the wife, but I'm still at it. Um, the dancing as well, I mean. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I noticed to my horror that on the two steps, you went up onto the stage and then you came down to two more steps. Uh, Anthony had placed two very young male dancers on one level, and two, and they were going like that to help. He's older than So I went to him and I said, I don't want anybody putting their arm out when I come up. Thank you very much. Please instruct them. So we did a rehearsal. And I 
shot up. I had my moment, went down again. And he has a great sense of humor. And he down as one of these great dancers, as you know. But he said, Bobby, why don't we do that again? Lynn, come here. And he said, I want a fan kick in the bottom of my eyes if you want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did not do. But I did manage a very deep, low courtesy queen because I, I thought I'm going to show that I could still dance my original solo. I'd also like to know, perhaps in closing, uh, what, what do you feel the prognosis for musical theater as we enter into our the, the next millennium that happens to be, uh, obviously, we make all kinds of spurts back and forth and uh, doing it from your perspective, but what do you feel is coming up? I don't know what's coming up in terms of, I haven't seen your exciting and thrilling rent, which I, everybody talks about, and I'm absolutely appalled to hear what happened to this wonderfully promising composer. Um, I do think that um, the through written musical might have not, not reached the zenith of its stay, uh, um, because I, I think that musicals will have to be like that, but I think Will, the next stage should be um, something created between having a book and having music, not book and music like we used to have, and not now through neo-operatic as we often have now, but something that weds the two in an original way. And I think this, this should be something called deadline workshop, because I think often what happens um, with workshops is that there isn't the fear I was talking about earlier on, of am I going to get this production right, is it going to work? Because it's a workshop. I think that my dream for musical theatre would be that um, a marvellous group of um, comp uh, comprising a composer and um, several media people and uh, a very well-known producer and a very well-known choreographer and several directors auditioned um, the marvelous pieces that there must be circling around, which, because of the long runs, which I am so lucky to be part of, find it more and more difficult to get in, because more and more theatres are used up, and it's more and more expensive for young writers to push their way in. So I, I, my dream is this, is this deadline workshop where there's a 10-week rehearsal period and four productions done every year, and the works to be done are chosen very carefully by that amazingly knowledgeable group of people. And uh, then there on the 11th week there would be the performances. And you would have to deliver, but if you've got that deadline, you're expected to give a marvelous performance at the end. Because I think that that um, urgency is what we're up against when we have to do the real thing, which doesn't happen in a workshop. You don't have the same sense of urgency, because you, you think, well, if it doesn't quite Quite well, we can go back to the drawing board, and it's all too lackadaisical. Uh, you know, I think people would go back against the wall, um, really doing their best work. So I think we should create that sort of climate to to bring on the new stuff. Well, having been with you, we go back against the wall. Few occasions, <laughs> I can assure all of those who are watching that uh, if anyone can make that marriage happen, it would certainly be you. Thank you very much. And if there are <laughs> might there be
me a question or two from the house. Well, then, thank you. <laughs> ah, yes. I'm sorry. I'm curious about your process of working with actors in the script. You took care of that before the play, you were before you talked about television and how you know, use the camera and all that in the script. Were you prepared for rehearsal with straight play? How much of it is planned in advance and how much do you develop through the rehearsal process with the actor? I would prepare myself hugely in advance and that I felt that I knew everything that was lurking on the top of and underneath the text. And then uh, I am a great believer, I, I, I like improvisation, but not to the extent that some people do. I'm a great believer in a, in a class at the start of every day where mutual pain is enjoyed by everyone, <laughs> which, which opens everyone's duties and makes you very close to the performance so that you can then say anything to each other and not shock each other. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite shocking in the class so that we've got rid of all that uh, before. Yes, so that I feel that we know each other hugely and we can let our hair down and then, yes, I, I would, I know the shape of, of every scene in my own brain, but I'm absolutely willing that once we get going, that shape will change, but I would never go into a rehearsal without some plot sitting here. I don't expect the actors to I mean, always what I'm saying. Mm. Not always. Uh, it's a bit of everything. It's a bit of life. It's, it, is, it is a movement. Quite tough movement, but it's breathing and it's um, some mind. Um, I've taken it, as a matter of fact. Uh, in the, the work experience that I've had with Jilly, uh, I have, along with others who are perhaps not generally associated with the dance, have put our little mats down on the floor, and we have thrown ourselves into this, and I must say, it does create a camaraderie, and it creates a closeness between the entire companies, a bond that can't just be handled by, by sitting around the table and reading. No, I mean, it's another way of getting to what improvisation does. I think it's slightly quicker. Mm. And it binds you, since you're giving the task and doing it with everyone, it, 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 it breaks down the barrier between director and performer very well, because you're all in the same boat, thrown in together. Yes. Will you be teaching here in the States? And second question is, what do you eat to keep in shape? Sometimes I eat and sometimes I don't. My husband says that inside me there's a fat woman trying to get out. <laughs> and in a way, I think that's horribly true, but it's just that I've had to be disciplined all my life. And... Um, a wonderful thing happened about five years ago. The simple man ballad that I'd made for Moira Shearer, and Mr. Gabriel Battles wanted to paint her ballad. Um, there was a big royal variety show at the Palladium in London, and the only two people who had danced that role were Moira, or uh, who Oates would only do it on celluloid or videotape. She wouldn't do it for real, because she said she couldn't go through all that thing. And Lynn Seymour, great dancer. And it, Neither of them were available on this particular night, and uh, so I, I actually danced it. And when you do a royal variety show, if you have a very big part of it, you, you, you come on at the end so that you land up in the middle for the pause. 
and it meant I was mu- I stood on the pavement of this queue of artists waiting to get on next to a wonderful actor called Sir John Mills, who was, I think, at the time, pushing 80, and had a sparkling eye and a roving gait and a tight tummy. And I couldn't help it, and I said, please forgive me, Sir John, that, you know, I've seen you in the most wonderful shape, and will you tell me how you do it? And he patted me on the thigh and said, hey, Dad, my dear, been on it since I was 44. And I don't, do you have the hay diet here? The basis of it is you do not mix carbohydrate and protein. You have nothing but fruit before 12. And after that, you don't, you can have as much carbohydrate as you like. You can have pasta and roast potato and pancake all in one meal. But you couldn't have a pasta with meat. You have spaghetti bolognese. And, or else you stick to protein. And I've I sort of followed that ever since I stood in this queue to get on with the ladies. <laughs> no, you, you mean teaching class? No, I'm not very good at that. I, I, I'm all right with my class that I'm going to uh, work with. I'm not truly interested in teaching. I will when I get a bit older. But <laughs> not really interested in just teaching class at the moment. Because I think there are so many people who, know, who are better at that than I am. My talent, if you like, is, is using that as a means to get to a true performance, rather than just to make a, a wonderful dancer. And uh, so, no, I won't be teaching that, but I hope I will be teaching Bill's actors. <laughs> that means that these four of them will not accept the contract. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Hi. Um, I'm... Um I'm going to ask a question that kind of ties in with this gentleman. I'm not sure, but I was going to ask. I come from an opera background, and um, that's along the line of getting juices running, instinctual juices running. Um, would you suggest primarily improv um, for those of us that come from a technical opera background, or uh, or what would you suggest for encouraging freedom of movement and instinctual responses? Um, I think you want a director who's not afraid to make an idiot of themselves. That's a great help because then they can they can go over the top for, to open up the path for you. And uh, I I would encourage I would encourage movement. No, I'm not talking about dance. I'm not talking about jazz, long band. I'm not talking about that kind of movement. Talking about the kind of movement that I'm interested in, which is an amalgam of all of it, plus yoga, plus what I learned from the back of the and all of that. I would uh, encourage the breaking, because I've, I've directed one opera for the English National, and I've worked with a lot of singers very closely. And um, I think that, that the freedom that comes from doing movement, but movement which is a you can sometimes paint a picture, an improvisational picture, which has to be interpreted through movement. Um, I would suggest that because I found the freedom that gives is very, very useful. And on the whole, you're painting in quite broad strokes in opera, aren't you? You're, you're, and you have to learn the use of space more than almost any other. Uh, of course, ballet and dance has to learn that, but in terms of singing, because you're dealing with you're opening up the air between your voice and 
something out there, you're filling that with drama, that therefore the more you know how to boost your voice physically, and so that the picture is a bit, the audio thing excites people, but then what you did with your body to launch that sound also excites them. And I think that comes from discovering things in the body. So I would encourage that. Now that I would like to teach sometimes. Um, Just really a comment. I just wanted to say thank you for giving um, dancers one of the only shows in forever in my life. Just in terms of how that was made, I have to tell you that that piece of music was not as long originally, and um, Andrew Lloyd Webber had delivered it as a little bit of a face accompli, and I started work on it, and I absolutely knew that there were about two very important moments in the graph of the musical shape missing. And I uh, went and talked to him about it, and I, I don't think that he'd ever had anybody say anything like that to him. He wasn't used to it at all. And so it absolutely floored him, and I, I knew the sickening feeling, and this is why I wanted to say how much of the show was prepared in advance. I knew the sickening feeling that we would have to show it rather than just talk about it. So with Chris Walker, we took sections of Andrew's wonderful music and built what I thought we needed there. And then this little skeleton crew of um, Fadola and John and Lindsay, and by that time we got Joanne and myself. Five people had to do the whole of the Jericho Ball flat out to prove the point. It nearly killed But um, he took me aside, and it, this is a, an expression that Andrew uses a lot. He said, it pains a boy very much to say this, but you are on it. And he, he got away with it. Um, but um, I'm not sure that we would today. But that was a lot of physics work. Brilliant work. It's not frequently that you're able to find out that Mr. Lloyd's musical graph is sufficient. No, well, it usually isn't sufficient, but I mean, nobody writes a perfect show. You always have to have to be, as we all know, little moments of, of sexuality. This was, this was to do a bit to do with sexuality and a little bit to do with sensuality. It was the sensual section, which anyone who's here knows about cats, was not there at all. And then I must just tell one wonderful story about the creating of that. When we were in the New London Theatre, we were about to open. It was 11 o'clock in the morning, and we were doing the ball, and we got to the sensual section, which by this time Andrew had made his own, and it was beautiful music. And it was anything but sensual. It was rather polite, and nobody was rapping with one another or anything. So I said, right, I'm coming in, and I dove into the middle of this mass of people and touched everything and every bit of, touched everything and got it, and then got out. And but Trevor Nunn was standing there, and he said, Julie, it's only 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and it says a lot, I think. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question before they kick us out of here, yes. Do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, don't talk about it. Um, um, uh, actually, go and do it, and and do do everything. Um, do do have a go at, at 
working with actors as well as dance, because I think that's the way things will have to be. Um, and um, make sure that your, your vocabulary uh, becomes wide, and therefore work with as many different teachers and work with as many types of dancer as you can. Because one, one cannot have a big enough vocabulary. I mean, none of us have a big enough vocabulary. The, the more you go on, the more you realize you need. And so the younger you start uh, building that vocabulary, the better. One more. In terms of uh, building vocabulary, you have changed my life in terms of how my day progresses. I started watching the reruns of The Muppet Show, and the vocabulary that you were able to use with these creatures has gotten me hooked for life. It's incredible. <laughs> I have never seen that. That is pretty much uh, along with what you're talking about, increasing the vocabulary of movement. No? Well, no, it is. I mean, that's why I said I learned so much from Jim Henson, but, but I had to learn to find amazing movements for those creatures, and some of them are massively big. You know. and in, fa in fact, there was one wonderful time when we were doing something with the animal characters, and they, they're the great big ones with the huge faces, and one, um, one of Jim's Muppet people had flu or something, and we were going to do a, an amazing live performance, and so Jim went into this huge thing and fainted, because I can't tell you what, how difficult they are, make movements and then the people get into into those amazing heads and lose their their, their disorientation. They they're not quite sure which is bundle and how their body is working. So you have to take all that into consideration too. Oh that's very nice of you. Thank you. Well I just want to say uh, I want you all to join me in thanking our guests, Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.